Amen. I love how Tess closed that prayer, that we would have ears for what you would have to say. That is how each one of these letters that we are looking at in this series of the seven churches, that's how each one of those letters ends. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen? You got ears tonight? All right, well, let's listen to our Lord speak through his word. We're continuing this study of the seven letters to the seven churches found in the book of Revelation, and we talked last week about John. John's the very last apostle, last man standing, and he has been exiled at the beginning of the book of Revelation to the island of Patmos, and we mentioned how Christ, the risen Christ, appears to John in a vision, and he has John take dictation. And Christ verbalizes seven important letters that are going to go out to seven literal churches. These churches were actual churches in John's day. They were real life, flesh and blood churches, but uh, the letters that are sent to them hold truth that is valuable for churches all across time. And in fact, many believe, as we talked about last week, that these seven churches represent uh, periods throughout church history. And we, we went through that. Last week, uh, we fact, uh, in fact, we started with the church at Ephesus. We talked about how that was a church that was kind of the quintessential first century church, that they were strong, they were staunch in their doctrine and in their morality, uh, but that they left their first love. What a tragic thing to leave your first love. I pray, church, that we would never lose the wonder of grace you know, when you lose the, the wonder, the basics of the gospel message and just what that means, the excitement, the exuberance, the passion that fills your heart because of what Jesus has done for you, man, you open yourself up to all kinds of things that can creep into that coldness, that dark place. And we discussed that last week. And now tonight, we're going to look at the next church on that list of churches. And it's a church by the name of Smyrna. Smyrna, and this is one of only two churches of the seven, that in, this partic- in their letter from Christ, they receive no rebukes. Wouldn't that be nice to have the Lord do an evaluation of your church and there's no red marks, okay? There's no red ink on that thing. It's just all commendation. Man, Smyrna gets a, a, just an amazing grade from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with church history, what you might know, when you hear the name Smyrna, it may jog a recollection The earliest known record of martyrdom in church history outside of the New Testament takes place in Smyrna. In fact, the word Smyrna comes from the Greek word mera, which means bitter. It means bitter. This church went through a bitter experience. They went through heavy persecution. And I would say that, that if those scholars are right about these churches representing different eras of church history, Smyrna might, might actually represent that era where Christians would suffer at the hands of Rome. Uh, at the end of the first century, it, it kicked off uh, a time when, when they would be jailed, they would be beaten, they would be slaughtered uh, under Roman rule right up to the point of uh, Emperor Constantine of Rome toward the twilight of the Roman Empire when he decreed, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And he just said the rule of Rome is now Christianity. Everybody's a Christian. That seems easy enough. Let's just announce that everybody's Christian, huh? Well, you don't accomplish the Great Commission that way. You can't mandate faith. And yet that's what they wanted to do. But up until that time, they were persecuted. 
And to this day, the name Smyrna is associated with a resolute church, a church that does not back down in the face of hardship. And there's a lot of churches named after Smyrna, not so many new churches. It's not, it's not a cool enough name for new churches. But for years, there were a lot of churches. You may have heard of some, Smyrna Baptist, Smyrna Presbyterian, Smyrna Methodist, okay? Uh, now, no Smyrna Episcopalian that I can think of. But anyway, Smyrna was a, an example, a shining example of steadfastness. One of the most famous figures in the history of the Christian church was a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was, he was uh, the bishop of Smyrna. You might call him the pastor of this church that is addressed right here. And it is said that John the Apostle was in fact the one who personally led young Polycarp to Christ. That he discipled him. And that he in fact one day commissioned him to be the bishop of the church here in Smyrna, which happens to be north of Ephesus in modern day Turkey. And Polycarp was the overseer of that church. He was the pastor of that church. And during this time, Rome felt uh, deeply threatened by Christianity. Christianity was, was sweeping like wildfire across the world. And of course, it held to this absolute God. There was one God as opposed to a pantheon of gods. And that one God came in the flesh uh, in the form of Jesus Christ. There was one man that could be worshipped because he was God. And this was a threat to the Roman way of life. And so they began to decree something. And it began uh, in the region where Smyrna was, and they mandated emperor worship. They said, everybody's got to worship the Roman emperor. And so once a year, uh, people in this area had to come, and they had to burn incense in honor of the emperor. And they had to make a sacrifice to the Caesar. And it was Caesar worship. And so... That was going on. That is the backdrop to this church that we're going to study tonight, this, this suffering, persecuted church. And Smyrna is very, very important in your notes because of, number one, how God sees a suffering church, and number two, because of what is set to happen in the, in the history of the Christian church, because this is going to be the first one outside of the book of Acts, outside of the New Testament. This little congregation right here, is going to be the first one to be heavily persecuted. Smyrna, folks, is the Lexington. It's the Pearl Harbor of the Christian church in terms of persecution. This is the first one to take a hit, and we can learn an awful lot from them. And that's my prayer tonight. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege of being here in some parts of the world. That's not something that can be achieved. There are no buildings like this. Uh, there is no luxury of, of having a nice facility. Uh, you cannot gather in the open. People gather uh, in private under cover of dark. And they can't sing boldly and loudly and, and raucously as we have already tonight. They have, to, they have to worship you in some parts of the world silently, God, in their hearts. And yet it's music to your heavenly ears. And so I pray that our worship in whatever form it takes is equally an aroma to you. And I would pray that tonight as we study this church who gave all, who laid it all on the altar for you, I pray that we would take from their example and we'd apply it in our lives. And we pray for their boldness. We pray for their fervor to encompass this body. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to dive right in. Verse 8, let's look at this. The letter begins... 
Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, you remember last week we talked about what that means. We all know what an angel is. It's a spiritual, heavenly being. But that is not what it means in this context. An angel, angelas in the Greek, means messenger. And so the angel of the church is the prime messenger of the church. It's the pastor of the church. So that's why I'm an angel. Okay. And so we observe that. And he writes, and he begins to identify with this church. And he says, the words of the first and the last is how he begins. And Christ references himself here. And in fact, every letter that we're going to end up studying, there is a reference to Christ right in the beginning of that letter. Okay, and you recall that the letter last week that we looked at to Ephesus, it talks about Christ as the one who, who holds the seven stars in his hand, the, the golden lampstands in his hand. And we will continue to see him referenced in every letter that we look at, but there's going to be a distinction because every time he talks about himself and he identifies with the church, there is something that has a special resonance for this individual church to whom the letter is addressed. And so here we see him talking about himself as the first and the last. He's the first and the last. And what does that say about him? If you're the first and the last, that identifies him as a divine being. Have you heard this phrase? He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end, all right? He's eternal. It all begins and ends with him. He is the first. That means he's preeminent over all things, all created things. He started this church. He started the Christian church. He is the rock upon which we stand. He's the first. And he's the last. That means that he is the one who ultimately will be exalted. When history is done and all of the thrones that are man-made are but mere dust, there will be one that remains, and it's Jesus Christ, and he's on his throne eternally. He is the last, and, and everyone will meet him when they die. These saints in Smyrna will, will meet him upon their death. Their persecutors will not be the last word uh, when they sentence these saints to death. They will have a judgment beyond that. They will have a high priest and judge in the form of Jesus Christ, and he will have the last word. And so he's the first and the last, and that means he's God. He is divine. But though he is God, and this is where the power is right here, though he is God, he can relate to everything that they're going through. And you know what? He can relate to everything that you're going through, you see. And so this is not merely a letter that the church at Smyrna is going to benefit from. We're all going to benefit from this. And he goes on, he says, he's the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And so what we're going to look at tonight together, we're going to look at six promises in your notes of Christ. Six promises of Christ to who? To believers who suffer faithfully. Believers who suffer faithfully. You say, well, we don't suffer like they did back then. Well, perhaps not in Alamance County. All right? Some people, look, there are two extremes when it comes to the topic of suffering and, and the modern uh, day. Some people in Christian circles, uh, they think that they suffer every time, uh, you know, it's December and some business does not uh, greet them with a Merry Christmas. Okay? Uh, that's not suffering. That's not suffering. That's just the culture evolving and culture is going to be the culture, the world's going to be the world, okay? That's not suffering. On the other hand, I, I, I do believe, I do believe that the opposite 
uh, extreme perspective is erroneous. When people say, well, nobody really suffers today. Nobody's really persecuted today. First of all, there's rabid persecution all over the world. I'm going to reference some of that in just a bit. But I've been in some of those countries where people are persecuted, even slain for their faith. It exists. There are martyrs in the world today in the name of Jesus Christ. You say, but not in America. Well, now hold on just a second. That could change in a heartbeat. It could change in a heartbeat. And there's all forms of persecution, okay? Uh, many, not that long ago, actually, it seemed impossible that the government would mandate that a church could, should close its doors. And yet we've just come through a season not that long ago where that exact thing happened. And where I come from on the West Coast, there were pastors that went to jail because they refused to forsake the assembling of themselves together as the word commands us to do. And we saw that. Okay, And there are other forms of that. And there are things that could happen today. Uh, so that can change in a heartbeat. And this is why a letter like this is important to us. Is that we need to be prepared to follow the example of a Smyrna here. But the first promise I want you to see is I want you to see that, number one, he has experienced and overcome the same challenges you face. We are all acquainted with suffering in some fashion. You could be persecuted for sharing your faith and you are rejected, mocked, ridiculed, perhaps reprimanded at work for such things. But I know this, you have earthly persecutors and you've got a spiritual persecutor as well. You've got an enemy named Satan that's got a big old bullseye on your life. And you need to know this. You need to know that Jesus has experienced and overcome the same challenges that you face. Is there anything that you go through in life that he doesn't get, that he doesn't understand not a thing. There is nothing. Have you ever seen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you of that great Christian film, The Wizard of Oz. All right? You need to know the Christian classics, okay? My kids were in The Wizard of Oz just a few years ago at their school, and my daughter, Delaney, played Dorothy, and my son, Hayden, played the Scarecrow. And so that was very special for mom and dad. I mean, we loved that. It was special for them too. Uh, but you know that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and the gang, they come before the wizard for the very first time. You remember that scene? And he's what? He's terrifying. He's this big green floating head, you know? And there's fire that erupts. And he's got this booming voice. He says, come forward, you know? And they step forward and the lion's just going, <laughs> you know, like that. And then he, he screams at them one at a time. And he says to the tin man, he goes, You come to me for a heart, do you? You clinking, clanking, clattering collection of collagenous junk. You ever been called that? And then he says to the scarecrow, he goes, And you come for a heart, you billowing bale of bovine fodder. You know, and there's this notion that the wizard is just high above. He can't, he can't identify with them. He is uh, removed from them. And you know what? Sometimes we think of God that way. We kind of think of God as the great and powerful Oz. You know, we got a cower in his presence, and he can't relate to what we're going through, but he does. He does relate. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we got one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Has Jesus been tempted like we've been tempted? In every respect. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 
personally, directly, by Satan himself. You know, if you recall, early on in the gospel, we read about that. And Satan takes him up to the highest mountain. He shows him everything. Shows him everything. He's like, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all of this stuff. Look at that. Look at the riches. Look at that lady down there. You can have all of that. I'm going to give you all of that if you just bow down and worship me. See, that's what he wants. Satan wants worship. He wants what's not his. He wants what belongs to God. And so he tempted Christ with everything that we could possibly be tempted with. And Jesus must have been thinking, you fool, I made all that. You tempted me with what I made, with what I already have? Get out of my face, you know? But did he succumb? Of course not. And so he didn't go through temptation to show us that it could be done if we just try hard enough. That was not, you know, follow my example. That was, I'm the only one who can resist. What did that verse say that we just read? It said, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. We serve a God who's been through everything, and yet he's been victorious, including death. He goes to the cross. He tastes death. He goes to the grave, and yet he overcomes it. He overcomes it. We need to know that because that has ramifications for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. What's that talking about? That's talking about one glorious day <laughs> when you and I, having passed from this life, trade in these old bags of bones for a glorious resurrection body. That's what that's talking about. It says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Man. I talked yesterday on the phone with a sweet grandmother who attends this church. And she called me and she was having a hard day. Uh, back in February, her granddaughter, it was her daughter and son-in-law's sweet, uh, sweet girl, was hit by a car and killed instantly. And so yesterday was the day when those, those parents, had, had, they were able to meet the man that was driving the other vehicle. It was a a difficult day. But you know, in that conversation, what we were able to rejoice in, I said, here's what Scripture says. Paul is comforting those in 1 Thessalonians. They are concerned because their loved ones have passed away, and, and the Lord is coming back, they understand, and they don't want their loved ones to miss it. And he says, they're not missing it. You see, one day the Lord will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up and together we will be with the Lord. And I say, you know, the cool thing about your your granddaughter is that she's with Jesus right now. And if you could give her an opportunity to come back, she'd turn it down. She's better than she's ever been. But she's not as good as she's gonna be. Because one day, she will be raised. And she won't just be with the Lord spiritually. She'll be with him physically and will be with her physically. And nevermore shall we part. Amen? And it just makes me want to jump. I mean, come on. If we can't get excited about that, do we need to know that? We need to know that. 
And Romans 6, 5 says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so that is what the one who suffers needs to know. And this is hard for people to understand. But I got to tell you, you got to cling to this hope. Because if this life is all there is, persecution is crushing. It is just devastating. You'd be at a total loss. So you need the fact of Christ's resurrection because your resurrection is tied to that. Smyrna needs to know that because they are being killed for the sake of Christ. And they need to know something. They need to know about this victory. You cannot conquer a people who know that they can't die. There's no conquering a people like that. I heard about a lady, maybe you heard about a lady that that did this. Um, She put it in her will that she wanted to be buried with her fork. She wanted to be buried with a fork. She was a longtime church member, and at every church dinner, when they would collect the plates and the trays, they would say, keep your fork, because that's for dessert. And so she wanted to communicate to all in attendance at her memorial, she knew something sweet was coming. (laughs) Something sweet. All right, so we go on from here. Verse 9, we, we, we see the commendation from Christ. He says, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I want you to underline the words, I know. I know. He knows. We've established that. Uh, he sees them. God sees everybody. He saw Jonah in the belly of the fish. He sees you in the belly of whatever you're going through. All right? You are not out of his sight. He sees uh, the Smyrna, Smyrnians, Smyrnans. I don't know what they're called. But he sees these Christians from Smyrna. He sees their tribulation. He sees their poverty. And then he says, but you are rich. You are rich. And this is number two in your notes. He tells the suffering saint, he has reserved you for eternal wealth. He's reserved you for eternal wealth. You have riches immeasurable. You've got unseen uh, wealth. We studied Ephesians not that long ago. It says in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has opened the vault of heaven and he's bestowed all of its contents upon you, the saints. There is nothing for which you lack. Okay, He's given it all to you. Uh, what, what has been uh, reserved for, for the begotten son of God is now bestowed on the, the adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. He knows what you're going through. He knows the poverty of your circumstances. And he wants us to know this. Here's what it says in Romans 8. You've got to look forward to the immeasurable wealth. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings, our present sufferings, whatever you're going through, are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. I want you to say, this doesn't match the glory. This doesn't match the glory. There's nothing I'm going to go through that can even possibly uh, carry a a whisper of what he's got for me. Paul says uh, in scripture, I was caught up to the third heaven and I saw things that man is not permitted to speak of. He said, I can't even begin to tell you. If I told you, you'd be of no earthly good. I, the, heaven is not described in vivid detail in the scriptures. Like it, not like it could be. And I believe the reason is, if you guys knew what heaven was like, we'd all race each other to hanging rock and just jump off. 
And then he says, he goes on to verse 9, he says, I know your poverty, and he says, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Man. And here's what this means. In your notes, number three, he knows the names of your persecutors. He knows their names. He knows their names. I know you're making a list. He's already got the list. Okay, put away your list. He's already got a list, and it's more comprehensive than yours. Okay, uh, he's saying, I know those who've made your life hell. I know who they are. Don't you worry about that. The blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not. He says this to Smyrna. And look what he calls them, a synagogue of Satan. That's politically correct, isn't it? Christ doesn't care about uh, offending people. And this is what religion is without Christ. This isn't just Judaism without Christ. It's all religion without Christ. It's the synagogue of Satan. Uh, You remember what what Jesus said in John 8? The the Pharisees are there. These are the ones that want him dead. And he says to them, he says, uh, now you seek to kill me, (laughs) a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You know, they, they were all haughty and proud that they descended from Abraham. You know, we are, we are of the chosen race. And ethnically, they were. But they were so proud about it, and they, and they were puffed up. And Jesus says, that's not the spirit of Abraham. He says, you're not of Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. You're of your father, the devil. And he tells Smyrna, I know your persecutors. Don't you worry. They'll get theirs. I'm the first and the last, okay? I will remember. I will not forget. And in verse 10, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. About to suffer. In other words, it hadn't happened yet. Jesus knows it's gonna happen. There's a prophecy here. And so number four in your notes, you need to know this. He knows your future, pleasant and unpleasant. He knows it all. You say, is that a comfort? Yes. You remember Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew. I'm sure they were delighted to hear this. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. They're probably like, great, you know. He tells Peter. He says, when you're old, another will come and dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And that was a prophecy of the way that Peter would die. And Peter's like, well, what about, what about him? He's like, don't you worry about John. If I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? And the point is that he knows the future, the good and the bad. He knows the good stuff that we'll encounter. We don't want to know the bad stuff. But he knows that too. We should want to know that he knows the good and the bad. Because if he only knows the good, that's not omniscience, you see. He sees it all, and he, because he knows what's coming, we're not to fear any of it. None of it's going to catch him off guard. And he continues on. He says, behold, here's what's going to come to Smyrna. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, okay? We've already seen Satan's name mentioned in, in the last verse, okay? The synagogue of Satan. Well, now he says the devil. So we got a very real enemy, You have an enemy that loathes you. Do you understand that? And he wants to slice and dice your life and deceive you. And he wants to discourage you. How many of you have been discouraged this week? Huh? Right? All right? That's that's the devil working. 
He wants to get you down. He wants to, to uh, cause you to, to seek other means of, uh, of solution besides Christ. He wants you to look at yourself and your own ability to get you out of your fix, right? He wants to cause you to sin. He wants to cause you to stumble. And uh, if possible, he wants to kill you. And that's what he wanted to do to Smyrna. And so the Lord tells Smyrna, this is the one who's behind everything. It's the devil. It's not the Jews. Oh, they're, they've got some culpability, but the mastermind is Satan, you see. Remember uh, Bill Bright and the Campus Crusade had a four spiritual laws method of evangelism. And the first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's a powerful tool. Well, there are, there are satanic laws, too. The first satanic law is Satan hates your guts and wants you to have a miserable life. Because he absolutely does. Why does he have such a big bullseye on your back? It's because you represent a, a people that hold the solution for mankind's dilemma. You do. You carry the fix for the ills that plague the soul of man. Is anybody in the secular world, is anybody in the mainstream media talking about the, the, the human dilemma? You're not going to hear that on CNN. You're not going to hear it on Fox News. You're not going to hear it on Tucker Carlson. You're not going to hear it on Four Angry Women. I mean, The View. You're not going to hear it <laughs> anywhere like that. Nobody is going to say, you know, so-and-so. You ever, uh, the problem with mankind is, is really sin and our, our violation of a holy God. And The only hope we have is, is the incarnation of that holy God in the form of his son uh, who will pay a substitutionary price for us uh, and, and, and pay that penalty of our sin. And by faith, we would have to come to him to be absolved of that sin and be, and be created new from the inside out and be indwelled with his spirit. You're never going to hear Whoopi Goldberg say that. You understand? Who's going to say it? It's going to be the children of God. And that is why you and I are such a threat to Satan. And that's why he went after Smyrna, because they took that role very seriously, that responsibility. Incidentally, can Satan do anything outside of the sovereignty of God? Can he just do whatever he wants? No, he cannot. You recall a certain book? That's right. There was a, a faithful man. He pleased the Lord. And Satan said, you just wait till I get a hold of him. But he didn't just do it without God's permission. God said, okay, I'll tell you what. You can, you can have his property. You can have his possessions. You can screw up his health, okay? But you don't kill him. Do whatever you want. Just don't kill him. He had to get God's permission. Because God is sovereign. Job is a very important book because it shows us evil comes from Satan. The evil came from the devil, but the devil is not God. The devil is not sovereign. He can only do what God permits him to do, and that is hard for us to understand because bad stuff happens, and we go, what are you letting him do this for, God? We don't understand it. Does that mean that God wants bad things to happen to us? It does not. It means that this is a fallen world but it means that God is still in control of a fallen world. He didn't create the world this way. There was no death, no suffering when he made the world. We screwed it up. Now we are dealing with the ramifications of a fallen world, and he's the prince of this world, Satan is. But even so, 
God made it, so God is above all, and he has to permit Satan to do whatever he wants. And we don't understand that. But here's what I do understand. If God is not in control, he's not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, he's not God. And so we must believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, you know, and I'm sure this should have been hard for Smyrna to understand. Why do, why do we suffer so much? We're only 35 miles from Ephesus. They aren't going through this. You know, Smyrna was in close proximity to all the other five churches. How come they weren't the suffering church? Why has it got to be Smyrna? We don't know why. It's not for us to know why. why. Why do Christians in North Korea have it tougher than Christians in Burlington? We don't get to know that. We get to accept it. We get to accept that God knows why. God knows why. There's a reason he's, he's allowing it. And we've got to begin and end with the fact that he is sovereign. He is just. He is a just God. He is a good God. But this is a fallen world. And the Lord continues. He says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. What is this about 10 days? Well, if Smyrna represents an era in church history, that would be the post-apostolic era where there was persecution. Uh, there, would be about, there would be actually 10 Roman emperors in succession that would persecute the church. So some think that that's what these 10 days represent, is that you're going to go through 10 emperors, 10 reigns, 10 rules of persecution. Persecution is still going on today. Let me give you some stats here. you got almost 400 Christians a month that are killed for their faith. That's 13 on average a day. 214 churches, Christian properties are destroyed every month. 772 forms of violence, that would be beatings, kidnappings, rape, uh, arrest, uh, are perpetrated against Christians every month. And in history, around 40 to 80 million Christians have been martyred, put to death for their faith. And more than half happened in the 20th century. In the 20th century. And so... Persecution on the whole is not on the level that it was uh, under the Roman Empire, perhaps at the end of the first century, but don't tell me that it's not happening. And even here, there, there are going to be freedoms that decrease. We, we have a luxury. We are able to gather as we are tonight. This is, a, this is a, a pleasure. This is a privilege that we have. Not all saints around the world enjoy this, but I just want you to know that the devil can come for us any moment. And the government can, can get on our case. And, and in a blink of an eye, they could, it could be decided that if a church takes a stand on a social issue because of a commitment to biblical values, a, a special tax status could be jerked away like that. Okay, And if that day ever comes, that will not be a hard decision for this church. I just want you to know that. I just want you to know that. We got a promise in verse 10. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so number five in your notes, what this means is he will reward your faithfulness. He will reward your faithfulness. I'm gonna give you a crown of life. When we ponder Christianity, we think of we're saved by grace through faith, right? Ephesians says, not of works. It's faith, it's not works. And yet we read this, be faithful to death and I will give you. If you do ABC, I will give you X, Y, Z. And that sounds very transactional. Is that in keeping with 
the words of Christ. Well, let's see. In Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That sounds like persecution. He says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. A reward. What do you get a reward for? Not for nothing. It's a reward. You are rewarded for actions, okay? Uh, So you read that and you see a direct link between something you do for Christ on earth and something great in heaven that he will do for you. And so what, what, what is that? It's not about, that's not about belief. That's about behavior. Well, here's the thing. This is not about salvation. This has nothing to do with salvation. This is a reward. And specifically, it's referred to as a crown. A crown uh, in, in uh, Revelation. And what Scripture teaches us is that... Uh, um, Your eternity is determined by two things. Belief determines where you spend eternity. You believe on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you spend eternity in heaven. You don't, you spend eternity in hell. That's belief. Behavior determines how you spend eternity. How you spend eternity. There's a judgment that all Christians will be at. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And at this judgment, salvation is not at issue. If you are at this judgment, you were saved, you are heaven bound. Don't even worry about it. You are judged for your works, not for salvation, but for reward. And the New Testament talks about a number of crowns that believers are awarded for things done in the body in the name of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now that word for judgment seat in the Greek is bema. Bema. Bema comes from Greek culture. There were these ancient games. You had the Isthmian games. You had the Athenian games. You had the Olympian games. And you'd have these athletes and they would train. They'd take a vow before they compete that I'm going to train and I'm not going to eat to the point of gluttony and I'm going to be disciplined and all this stuff. And then they would compete. They'd run a race. And they'd finish that race. And at the finish line, there was this podium that was elevated overlooking the finish line. It was called the Bema. And there was a judge up there and he had a vantage point where he could see who came in first, second, Third, and then those athletes would come back after the race and stand before the Bema, and the judge would announce the winner, and he would bestow a crown, a victor's crown. It was called a Stephanos. It was a wreath, and he would put it on the head of the winner of that race, and, and uh, the New Testament is replete with references to this kind of a scene. Paul talks about the Christian life as a race. Run the race in such a way that you may win it. You know, at the end of the Christian life, when you stand before God, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And so there's this imagery there. And the New Testament uses the Bema seat as an image for this future judgment called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And Christ will there reward the faithful. It has nothing to do with your salvation. If you're at this judgment, you have salvation. These are rewards for how you ran the race. And there are various crowns that the Bible talks about. And one of the crowns that is mentioned, we could do a study on all the crowns. That'd be fun. But one of them is the crown of life. And that's the one 
that is referenced with regard to Smyrna. And the crown of life is often called the martyr's crown because it is reserved for those who suffer or even give their life for Jesus Christ. So how do you win this crown? You go through it and you endure and you are faithful even though you're suffering, perhaps to the point of death, okay? Not every believer is going to win every crown. Not every believer is going to lay down their life. But the ones who do lay down their life receive this particular crown. And the saints at Smyrna would receive it. But you, you boldly confess Christ no matter what the repercussions. No matter what. I told you at the beginning of our message that Smyrna was a place where emperor worship was mandated. You know, once a year you've got you to offer sacrifice to the emperor. And so Polycarp, I mentioned him as well. He's the pastor of this bunch. He's the bishop of Smyrna. All these Christians are looking to him. How's he going to respond to this threat? If you don't worship the emperor, there, there's going to be ramifications. Polycarp, what do we do? Show us. Well, it was possible in those days. When you made that sacrifice to the emperor, you would receive a receipt you get a certificate, and that certificate would say, you know, I, I have done my duty. I have worshipped Caesar. You could purchase such a certificate and there, thereby indicate that you had worshipped Caesar when, in fact, you had not. And so, technically, you didn't have to literally worship Caesar, but you could buy this document that said you did, so theoretically you could keep from idolatry and you could avoid the repercussions of disobedience. But is that being faithful unto death? Is the crown of life going to be bestowed upon somebody who took that route? Polycarp said no. Polycarp said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to refuse to do that which would displease God. And so Rome sought to make an example of him and execute Polycarp. So here's this guy, one of the early church fathers. He's a personal convert of the Apostle John. At this point in his life, he is 86 years old. And the Romans drag this man from his house. The Roman proconsul tries to force him to deny Christ. He says, you need to swear, you need to reproach Christ, and I'll let you live. And history records that Polycarp made this statement. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served my Savior. And never has he done me wrong. Can I betray him now? And the proconsul still tried to convince him to cave in. He says, all right, look, I got wild animals here. I got tigers Okay, if you refuse to renounce Christ, if you refuse to worship the emperor, I will throw you to these animals. They will tear you limb from limb. They will eat you alive. And history says that Polycarp re replied, call them. He said, it's unthinkable for me to repent from that which is good to turn to that which is evil. He said, I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. And the proconsul said, fine, if the threat of wild animals is not going to scare you, then I will have you burned at the stake. And here is reportedly what Polycarp said. He said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. 
but you know nothing of the eternal fire of the coming judgment and the punishment reserved for the ungodly. He said, what are you waiting for? Bring on whatever you have. And so the crowds gathered wood, and they made a pyre right there, and Polycarp takes off his robe. He walks up onto that wood willingly. The soldiers came. They had nails and a hammer, and they were preparing to nail him to that stake, and he said, that's not necessary. He said, my Lord, who will enable me to go through this fire, will enable me to stand on this wood unmoved. And before they lit that, he began to pray, and he prayed this. He said, Lord, I bless you for considering me worthy of this day and hour of of sharing with the martyrs of the cup of Christ as to share in the resurrection to everlasting life of soul and body in the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them into your presence today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice for this and for everything I praise and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved child. Through him and with him, may you be glorified with the Holy Spirit both now and forever. Amen. And they lit that fire. And here's what tradition says. It says that the fire created an ark above him, around him. It encircled him, but it did not touch his skin. He was not consumed by the fire. And finally, the Roman soldiers approached the flame, and they thrust a spear through the flame, and they lanced Polycarp through. And he died instantly. And he became one of the first great Christian martyrs. And to him and to all who suffer for the name of Christ, here's what the Lord says as he closes this letter. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers. The one who conquers, is that you? Will not be hurt by the second death. If you know Christ, you're a conqueror. That's what Romans 8 says. We are more than conquerors. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is that? Well, the second death is worse than the first death. We will taste death. It is appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. The first death, that's when you physically die. I anticipate going through that, unless the Lord raptures me. And make that so, Lord. But if if he tarries... I will die, and so will you. The second death is after you are raised from the dead. If you don't know Christ, if you are ungodly, if you are lost, you will stand before a different judgment than the righteous. At the coming of the Lord, the righteous will go to the judgment seat of Christ, but at the end of the millennium, there's another judgment. It's called, it's called the great white throne judgment, and it is for all the ungodly, And those ungodly have all at this point died. And they will then be resurrected, judged. And look what happens. Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Can you imagine dying in your unbelief and your rejection of Christ only to be raised and then thrown alive into the, the eternal fire. And you perish again, but your soul remains to suffer indefinitely. There's no hope for people in that situation. And so that's why the saints of Smyrna and all who follow their example are in the best situation possible. I want to close with this. I, just, I want you to see what a believer, what a follower of Christ looks like to God. This is in Matthew 5. In his Sermon on the Mount, here's what he says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what it means to be poor in spirit? That means that you know you have nothing to offer to God. You know you cannot produce anything that can earn heaven. If you died and you stood before God, you would be one who would say, I got nothing to give you. I'm barren. I'm destitute. There's nothing worthy of you. That is an attitude of, of utter, utter base knowledge. And in verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you know that you've got nothing to offer God, you're not mourning for others. You're mourning for you. You have nothing that, that, that can stand before a holy God. And verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is the next phase you recognize you're poor in spirit. I've got nothing to offer. And now I mourn because I've got nothing to offer. That's a brokenness. But now it portrays humility. There is a meekness. You are broken. You come gently before God. He has shown you you're not good enough on your own. You're not righteous on your own. You're not smart enough, strong enough. You are weak. And you embrace that humbly. Then verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And so in that state, you hunger for something. You thirst for something that gives you life. What is it? It says it's, it's righteousness. You now crave to be in right standing with God. So that means you are coming by faith to be made righteous. This is, this is you being born again. And as a result, in verse 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see? So you come by faith. God shows his mercy to you. Now you are merciful because you've been shown the mercy of God. And verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, you're born again. You're not perfect, but you don't think about sin like you used to. It's different. You can still fail, but you're not happy about it. It used to be you didn't sorrow over sin. You only sorrowed after you were caught. And now you understand what sin is and you're broken because you're not a child of the devil anymore. You're a child of God. There's a sensitivity towards sin. You can't do it without any conscience. Verse 9 says, Now blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So now you start telling others about Christ. And this is part of that journey of discipleship. You promote the peace that was granted to you. You want others to have the same peace that you have. But then what happens when you do that? When you boldly proclaim Christ and share the gospel with others, you run the risk of something. In verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted 
for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're faithful. You're vocal about it. You're bold. You're unashamed. And as a result, you're persecuted. And God sees persecution as inseparable from conversion. It is part and parcel to the Christian life. If you take your faith seriously, you will at some point take a hit. You'll be bold, you'll proclaim Christ, and somebody will try to smack you down. And this is predicted in Scripture. But look where this ends up. In verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You ever been lied about? You ever been reviled? People spread untrue things about you? Falsely, on my account... Verse 12, rejoice, he says, and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, as Christians who are faithful, you stand in a holy line with, with, with the likes of Jeremiah and, and, and uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel. And in verse 13, it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the salt of the earth. You create in others an appetite for God. And you're a preservative as salt is upon society. And he says in verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That means that people will know right and wrong by your words. You will shine a light. You, you, will be, you will purify and disinfect as light does. You will be uh, the spirit-filled restrainer of evil and a preserver of society as a child of God. And then verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. We gotta be unafraid. We gotta lay it on the line like Smyrna. We gotta be a light that is visible. And in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your God, your Father, who is in heaven. Are we going to follow their example? That's the question we close with tonight. We're going to learn from every church. We're going to learn from the good, and we're going to learn from the bad. And there's a lot of bad. You can sure learn from my mistakes. I hope that I learn from them. But we can really learn from, from the one who is the ultimate model, which is Jesus Christ, and those who faithfully followed that model that have gone before us. And we honor them, and Christ will honor them, as all of us honor Christ. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon this group. May we go forward and take up that mantle, God, as we consider the uh, amazing legacy of the faithful, that cavalcade of the righteous throughout history, God, that were unashamed, that did not count uh, the, the, the accolades of the world to be something that they should strive for, but they looked ahead to the prize. They didn't take their eyes off of you. And that gave them a perspective that empowered them to make a difference that would echo in eternity. I pray that we would be that bold. And I pray your blessings upon this group. In Jesus' name, amen.